I don't know that newspapers could have been saved, but the uh, decline of newspapers could have been managed so that it took 100 years instead of 15 or 20. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We are proud members of the Harbinger Media Network. If you like podcasts like this one, please check out other podcasts that feature my co-hosts like The Progress Report <laughs> and Kino Lefter, which he's making appearances on, and also The 49th Parallel, which he keeps wanting to mention because I think he wants him to make an appearance on that show too. So um, let's make it a trifecta of J- Jerome appearances. Yeah, my name on, is Rob. Yeah, my name is Scott Schmidt. I am your co-host. I am here alongside my my co-host and Alberta freaking star these days, Jeremy Appel. How's it going, buddy? It's going pretty well. Um, you know, I was just, uh, I got off the phone um, screaming at my city councillor about my local Dairy Queen. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I heard, I hear Drew Farrell burn that down. Yeah, she burnt, she did arson. Yeah. Yeah. yeah lock her up. Hey man, listen. If you're an outgoing, if you're an outgoing going city councilor, why not stir some shit on your way out the door? Yeah, like, actually, my city councilor is the other outgoing uh, progressive city councilor, uh, Evan Woolley. But um, you know, there's uh, Dairy Queens in every word. As if the as if we all haven't committed a crime to make sure there's a journalistic story to cover, right? Yeah, unsolved crime. No one knows who did it. You ever see that movie Nightcrawler? With Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal. No, I haven't seen it. Uh, Ryan McCracken tells me how good it is. Yeah, Ryan. Ryan has good taste in movies. Yeah. So this, I got to tell you quickly before we get on with the show because I don't want to leave our guests waiting here too long. But this morning, uh, it was uh, Saturday morning, so it's your usual little anti-mask uh, showdown. But uh, that J Rock's restaurant that's opening in defiance of health laws and posting QAnon slogans and shit like this. He, uh, they hosted Chris Sky this morning. Well, convoy. There was a lot of people there, man. Like, is, is I, when Chris- I, I was there before they got there. I had to leave because I had to come and do this podcast, and obviously, I wasn't going to get out of my car. So I was just sort of eyeing up, seeing what would happen. And the guy was late, so I couldn't stick around. But I've seen his speech a little bit from the back of the truck in the J Rocks parking lot. And uh, my favorite line so far that I remember was. Uh, the real virus isn't COVID. The real virus is government tyranny. It's mental health. Right. And of I care course, about mental health. at least half of what I heard no. was about how vaccines, they cannot force you to take a vaccine. We will not be forced to take a vaccine, like down with mandatory vaccines. And I'm pretty sure those are uh, not mandatory yeah. yeah yeah i don't think i don't think jason kenny's gonna do that although well, well didn't the government take out a um piece of legislation that would have allowed them to make don't know that they've actually done that yet but they are going to that's one yeah, of they're, they're, that's they're a right, that okay. off. yeah they're gonna write a piece of a law that says you can never do that 
I'm I'm speaking up without being introduced. No, that's but, okay. Uh, we love it. We love it. I, I, earlier, I was going to deny that I'd ever committed a crime for journalistic purposes. <laughs> I think people mostly know that we're full of crap on this show for in some ways, so we're all good. But anyways, now that we've started speaking to our guests, why don't we get to our guests and get on with the show? Because I don't think we should uh, platform or profile Chris Sky for too long on this program. He's such a dipshit. I'd never even heard of the guy. Dude... Do you know who I'm talking about, though? Yeah, like, you know I do. Who he is now? I, yeah, I do now. Oh man, I, I can't believe you haven't seen some of his videos before. He's is, uh, he, he's one of those like guy in his trucks like videos, like yeah, you know what I mean. There was a lot. That, last thing I'll say about before we get to David, but there was a lot of fucking Canadian flags there, which I thought was weird because I don't think these people are super into Canada. And secondly, there was one really, really giant Saskatchewan flag, like just huge saskatchewan flag like and it was like in the shot of his entire speech and well writer's nation unmasked right a lot of patriotism toward a (laughs) province you're not even in right now anyway let's get to our guests we have welcomed a lot of really great guests to this show in our first year but as begin year two on the forgotten corner we are extremely excited to spend the next hour or so with someone we see as somewhat of a mentor David Kleiman Haga is best known these days for his Alberta politics blog, which sees him take on issues in this province like no other, unapologetically writing against the typical conservative grain most of us are used to. But as as you'll learn today, as journalists and worker advocates ourselves, there are myriad reasons why David is someone we look up to. From his decades involved with unions to the famous 1999 Calgary Herald strike, which eventually marked the end of his professional journalism career, David has seen and done a lot in Alberta, making him one of our favorite shit disturbers of all time. David, welcome to the Forgotten Corner. Thank you very much. Appreciate how did you know how to pronounce my name? Uh, well, in fact, when I was when I was going to talk to you the other day. Before we ch- chatted, I was I had two pronunciations in my head of where to emphasize uh, the syllable, and I was going to ask you, but then you answered the phone with your by saying your full name. Well, there we go. And so I I didn't I had it. I just I logged it in. So I got it right. You got it right. Yes. yes. But but if you'd got it wrong, I wouldn't have said. That's that's my policy. I just if I, if it's recognizable, I don't correct people. I hope that's not everyone's policy, because in which case we've gotten it wrong like 34 times. So <laughs> we got it wrong when I had Ninji was on or I did. I, I was I had no idea. But this is what happens when. Oh, you're... And I, I mean, I covered the guy and I thought his name was Nahid. Yeah. I, everyone here is a print journalist. So pronouncing names is not something yeah. we worry about. We spell them and that's our thing. If you spell a name wrong, I find that to me like that's a personal, like real problem if I spell someone's name wrong. But I never, this is, you know, this is our only broadcast of any type. And uh, we suck at that sometimes. Well, I, I thought his name was Nahid too. But Jeremy, I thought your name was Apple. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, Which I'm sure you encounter all the time. Yeah, since I was, since I can remember. Uh, he kind of runs I, with it. That's why I had that, When it. you changed your, your Twitter handle to, to Appel, then I figured, oh, I yeah. must be wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's why I did it phonetically. Um <laughs> but also uh previously i had an apple emoji in 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 my name on that Twitter, didn't help that was there help. for a while yeah. too yeah you'd make plays on it at halloween and shit so yeah yeah it's uh you did this to yourself so i really did that's okay mine's really easy like everybody loves any word that rhymes with shit yeah but yours can't be spelled because we all want to throw that extra c in there well but I, mine ha- like that's the problem my name has a c in it it's just that like 
Well, maybe 11, it's an H. 11 There's... years ago. No, ele- my name, it's S-C-H-M-I-D-T. But 11 years ago, when I made my Twitter handle, I thought I was like being super cool and smart to drop the C and the D for when I wrote Schmitzy. So now my email is S-H-M-I-T-Z-Y-S-A-Y-S. And everyone throws the C in because of course you do. So this isn't anyone's fault but my own. But it's 11 year, it's like, I, I don't know what to do. Like I have a yahoo.ca email for crying out loud. I just live in the, this is, I don't make changes. It's locked in you guys. Wait, you have a Yahoo email? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. It ha- like it's, everyone has it. So it's like, I, I mean, I have a Gmail. I just don't give it out. Cause it's like the transition. Ugh. You know what I had when I was younger? What? Hotmail account. That was yeah, my, that was the coolest thing. My, my I got a letter from Hotmail just the other day saying we're going to pull a plug on your account <laughs> if you don't use it. You haven't used it for thirty years or something. My my wife, who's thirty one days older than I am, has a Hotmail account. So I have a Yahoo.ca and she has a Hotmail, and uh, we uh, met on MySpace. Anyway, so she has two. That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> but anyway, listen, enough about our ridiculousness. I want to get to Dave because we have a lot we want to talk about with him. And uh, of course, as we do on the Forgotten Corner, every guest has to uh, run through their life story a little bit. And so we're going to sit back and let, and let you talk for a little bit. But uh, born, born on in Victoria, moved a little bit around the island, I think, right? And uh, um, I'll stop and let you go. Okay, well, I was born on Vancouver Island in Victoria, and uh, I don't know if you know this, because nobody from Vancouver Island does, but apparently, I read this in a book, uh, that if you were born on the island, you have the right to call yourself a salmon bill. So, like, if you're born in the Florida Keys, you're a conk. So, (laughs) I guess, I guess I'm a salmon bill. All right. Okay, well, okay, enough about me. Sorry. No, all (laughs) about you. Yeah, more about you. Let's go. Well, I went to university there. My dad was a professor at the University of Victoria, and I uh, developed an interest in journalism fairly early when I was in uh, junior high school. I was telling Scott about this in a little pre-interview that I uh, was asked in one of my junior high school classes to do a job study. And it turned out that most of the young men in this class, they were all boys, uh, did job studies and whatever their dads did, but I decided to go down and visit the local newspaper. And I phoned the colonist in the Times, which were separate papers at the time, and the editor of the Victoria Times, who turned out not to be a very nice guy, but he uh, he arranged for me to speak to one of his uh, to his editorial page editor, a guy named Peter Murray, who was a great person. And uh, I went did the job study and, and developed, as a result of that, a, a real abiding interest. I got some, as I, as I said the other day, I got some bad advice on how to advance my career in journalism, but uh, I took it anyway and, and did eventually manage to get a job. I worked, uh, I became the editor of the student newspaper at the University of Victoria. I'm the only person in the history of the University of Victoria to have done that job twice, uh, which I recognize indicates a character flaw. So I was the editor for two years separated by a year in between. Uh, I went, uh, I got a summer job at the Victoria Times when I, in, I told you 1972, but it was 1973. Yeah, when I thought, when I got down and thought about it. And, uh, uh, and then after that, I went on a road trip and I drove up through the Okanagan and into Alberta, stopping at all the community papers along the way and applying for a job, just doing cold call applications. And uh, when I got to 
the Calgary Herald, which was the biggest paper and I felt the least likely one to hire me. I went in, did my cold call. And the guy who had a fairly serious drinking problem, but who had been sort of assigned to be my mentor at the Victoria Times, came wandering in. He was on his way back from the press club and he was half stewed. And he said, Clementega, what are you doing here? And I told him, well, I'm applying for a job. And he said, well, who, who are you seeing? I told him who I was waiting for. And he said, just stay where you are. Let me talk to him. And he went over and he talked to the guy for about five minutes. And then basically he, the, the fellow came out and hired me on the spot. And I found out later that uh, Doug had said to him, my, my recommendation that got me the job was, he just went over to him and he said, see that kid over there? I worked with him at the Victoria Times. The kid can spell cat. And, uh, and the, his usual line about reporters was, Oh, that guy couldn't spell cat if you spotted him the C and the T. So. <laughs> I, uh, as a copy editor, I concur. Well, he'd, he'd been a copy editor for years. So I worked at the, at the Calgary Herald for a while and I left fairly quickly. I was homesick for Victoria, went back to Victoria, uh, worked for the government for a while and uh, eventually managed to get myself fired from the BC government. So I, uh, I went back to university and completed my degree and uh, then um, my wife and I got married and I got accepted as a, uh, as a master's student at Carleton University. I went out to, to, to do a master's degree in journalism there, but that one I also didn't complete in one shot uh, because I got a summer job while I was working out there at the Globe and Mail. We moved to Toronto and, I, and they kept me on on a permanent part-time basis at the end of the summer. And then thankfully for me, there were a whole bunch of people like me who'd really been working full-time and the union filed a grievance on our behalf. So out of that grievance came a permanent job at the Global Mail and I stayed there for about six years, I think it was. And, uh, and then when our first daughter was born, we moved to Calgary and I got a job at the Calgary Herald and I worked at the Herald as a, both a copy editor and then as a reporter or pardon me, as a reporter first and then as a copy editor. That, uh, and, sorry to interrupt, but that union uh, intervention in Globe and Mail, was that sort of your first, uh, like, was that your foray into, into union workings? Had you, did you really? Not, not really. I had uh, a neighbor uh, who was a senior official in a union uh, when I was a kid growing up and his, his son and I went to school together and we're friends and are still friends. Uh, and uh, his name was uh, Elgin Nish or no, known to everybody as Scotty Nish. And he was the, uh, the last, uh, the last uh, communist union president in Canada. I oh, believe yeah. he was president of the United Fishermen and Allied. Workers. I don't, not if you ask Matt Wolf, I'm pretty sure they're all communists. But. Well, yeah, but that, that's a slightly <laughs> different definition of communist. <laughs> But anyway, anyway, so uh, I've tried to hurry this along, but uh, I, uh, so where was I? I you was, went to Calgary. Uh, I went to Calgary to and I worked yeah. there. The Calgary, unfortunately, the Calgary Herald had a, it had a very good managing editor when I was hired, a woman named Jillian uh, uh, Stewart, who you're probably aware of. Yeah. Uh, she writes on Alberta for the, uh, for the Toronto Star nowadays. Right. And, and she's but a Jillian, professor, isn't she? I think so. Yeah. Jillian left there immediately after uh, immediately after I showed up because she got quite ill for a spell and uh, decided to pack it in. And the, the executive editorial level that took over from her, let's just say uh, they were hard to work with and they didn't run a particularly good paper. And I th really think that kind of marks the beginning of the downhill slide at the Calgary Herald. And, but, and so at this point, did Southam own it? Yes. 
Okay, and so, and so I when I'm talking about Can West or Post Media or or uh, Hollinger, uh, often what comes out of my mouth is Southam because it was it was a Southam paper when I first went there. It was a Southam paper when I went there. I think I skipped a bit, but yeah, no, I didn't because when I went there in the '70s, and it was still a Southam paper when I got back, but then it quickly cycled into. When we had the strike, you know, when the strike started, I believe we were Southam, and when the strike ended, uh, it had been sold to Can West Media because it was sold during the strike. Okay, I thought I thought Conrad Black owned it. Like, yeah, no, I'm the sorry, there was there was a spell when Conrad was in there too. I see, I've wiped him from my memory. <laughs> so no, so that's right because. You're right, because uh, uh, it was, nevertheless, it was Southam when I started, then it was Hollinger, and Black was in charge during the strike, and of course we personalized it and made it a fight with Black, which I think was a strategic mistake, um, and then it was sold by Black to Canwest Media during the strike, and it was when they came out of the strike, it was a Canwest paper, and subsequently it's become Post Media, but the thing to keep in mind with this is it's always been the same bad managers running the corporation and the same dumb decisions. And they're all part of a, a continuum. And anyway, at the, so we, are, we were worried, that's right, because it was when Black was running things. We were, the, particularly the older senior reporters were getting really worried that we were going to find ourselves in a situation where um, we were being pushed out the door in order to save money. Uh, people were concerned about their job security. So we organized a union uh, by then. And again, you have to, this is, too complicated stuff for people who are generally following this, but but uh, we had had a change in to publisher from Kevin Peterson. Uh, Kevin Peterson brought in Ken King at one point. Ken King stayed for a week and went back to the sun. Then Peterson was, and I forget the details of exactly how this worked, but Peterson was on his way out and then they brought in Ken King as publisher. And, and then when Ken King basically created the conditions that led to the strike, they pushed him out and sent him off to Vancouver and brought in a guy named Dan Gaynor, who was the publisher during the strike. And he was just, he was someone who had a reputation of being able to break a strike. But anyway, that's all kind of ephemera that's not too important to this discussion, but we had formed a union. Uh, they, King tried very, very hard to prevent us from, uh, from being able to form the union. And he, and he broke all the rules with impunity, uh, which kind of gave the impression that labor law in Alberta was, that there really isn't the rule of law in Alberta was the way I felt at the time. Uh, we had, a, as a result of his efforts, I think the strike, I think the uh, certification vote was bigger than it would have been otherwise because members of the staff were, were offended. Uh, we had an 82% vote to join the union or about, let's say about 80%. And uh, uh, the upshot of that was we tried to get a first contract. We went on strike for eight months. And at the end of the eight months, uh, the, the union, Communications, Energy and Paperworkers Union, which is now part of Unifor, basically gave up on us. And they gave us a deal. Well, you can vote to decertify and we'll get your buyout, which was uh, reprehensible in my view. And CEP shouldn't have done that. But nevertheless, you have to, you have to live with the situation that you're presented with. So that was when I left... Uh, journalism because I took the buyout rather than continue to work for that organization. I felt, I think realistically that I'd been vice president of the union. I forgot that key fact. Uh, they probably would have pushed me out anyway. Uh, I was very, very fortunate. I landed on my feet. I got a job as communications director of the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees, which you guys know is the largest union in Alberta. I had a very enjoyable time there. 10 years ago, United Nurses of Alberta recruited me. 
and uh, I, I was time for me to get a change. So I, at that point, I was five years away from retirement age. So I, I went to work there and I've worked there ever since. Now, I'm going to have to retire one of these days, but they seem not to want me to. So I have been content to stick around. And so when did you start the Alberta politics blog? Well, I started it 14 years ago. I was working for uh, AUPE at the time. And I was fortunate, I guess, that I would write fairly outrageous stuff, probably more outrageous than I do now. Uh, and uh, But almost nobody was reading it. So people will ask, you know, how do you get a blog to be to get to get a good, really good readership? And uh, and one of the ways you can do it is by being really patient and just continuing to write when you have a small number of readers. Because I'm sure I had only a dozen readers or so at the start, and then maybe I'd get to the point where I'd feel that there were 25 or 30 people that were reading it regularly, or a, or a couple hundred that were reading it regularly. And I thought, this is terrific. This is incredibly good. It's really fun. It's rewarding. But uh, I wasn't making any money from it. I do make a little bit now from selling advertisements, but I, uh, uh, I just had, uh, I, I just enjoyed doing it. So I continued to do it. Well, then the readership built and built and built and over 14 years. At the start of the pandemic, if the readership I was having then had kept up, I would have amortized over a year, I would have had about 5 million page views for the year. Now, it's really about half that or really about two and a half million. Uh, because year? That's I'm, pretty impressive. That's pretty good, I grant you. But it's... Uh, uh, I think that what happened was right at the start of the pandemic, the numbers went up. You know, we're we're, all, we're taking we're averaging numbers all over the place, but uh, and everybody seemed to be reading it. I would have huge numbers. Now it's kind of back to normal, but it but it amortizes out over a year at about two point five million pages. Wow. Good for you. So, well, it's a, I mean, it's a great blog, and I think like when really since twenty fifteen when politics is when it really shifted for for what i the way i view alberta as far as uh the way people are engaged in politics because like i lived here from 97 on and there was a lot of years under pc government where you just kind of like didn't really think about it because it was just that's what we were we were gonna have the same government for all the time but when 2015 uh, rolled around and the ndp showed up everybody got loud and angry I hadn't seen that in a way, like personally, anyways, I hadn't really seen a lot of that. And then now 2019 and beyond, it's the same thing again, right? Like now we're seeing people engaged in a way I've never seen before. I agree with you, but I, but I think your timing might be off a little bit. I think it happened a bit before. And I think it happened after. Uh, well, actually, with, if you go back to Stelmag, who was, who was an extremely good premier and a pretty reasonable guy. And, and Stelmag really pissed off the far right. And you remember the electricity uh, lines, the power lines became a huge issue. And we saw a lot of the same techniques we saw used against the NDP government, the kind of really hysterical conspiracy based. Wasn't that there, it wasn't that people that were opposed to that policy didn't have a good case to be made. It was that a lot of the rhetoric around it really, really went f flipped off to the really far right. And, that, and it was, and then it was Stelmec who put it? Who talked about our royalties are too low, and did a study of the royalty rates and was going to raise the royalties a bit. And that was when the oil industry, the 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 uh, small operators particularly, put money into the Wild Rose Party. So I think the kind of issues that you're talking about 
really started with the Wild Rose under Stelmack. They grew hysterical under Redford. Yeah, I think in large part because she was a woman and there was a real hostility. There's real misogyny, deep misogyny in our society and in this province in particular. So they so they went after her in a way that they would never have gone after even people they disliked like Stelmack beforehand. Yeah. Although she was a flawed person too. And, and so that she created some of her own problems for in obvious ways. Uh, her judgment just seemed to go off the rails once she became premier. And then this continued with Rachel Notley. And Rachel is a very different person from, from uh, uh, Allison. And, she, and, and Rachel Notley is, is very cool and collected and intellectual, uh, but she's still got that same kind of really harsh anti-woman kind of attack. I mean, we all have to examine ourselves about this too. I, I find myself referring to women by their first names and men by their last names. And I recognize that, uh, you know, that comes from the same place in a way, but we can, we can, we can correct that as we move forward. We've all had our consciousness raised, as they say. We got to go. Well, back anyway, I, the, the key issue here is that that there there seems to have been a steady drift on the right to the farther right. It doesn't necessarily mean that the whole political spectrum in Alberta is moving to the right. There's been some of that too, but not it may, not as much. But the crazy right is getting crazier, and then I compare it to a virus. Is the the uh, QAnon kind of thinking from the United States has definitely come across the border. We all see it in our own families as well as in, in yeah. our broader circle. And there's a there's real deep craziness out there. There's real people that you can't talk to. Well, I think that I also think like um, on the flip side of that, like I find that the leftist, if that's the best word for it, community is growing in Alberta. And I think it's probably spawning from that shift to the right that conservatives me because I think maybe there was a lot of people that grew up sort of numb to politics here because it was just how it was. I mean, well, we had I, Janice Irwin on last week and Janice was like, I was conservative because everyone was conservative. I covered City Hall for the Calgary Herald and I remember uh, speaking to one of the aldermen, aldermen in those days and they used the title alderman and I can't remember her name, but I, I, uh, I said, why would you be a conservative, because this your attitudes are clearly attitudes that I would associate with the NDP or possibly the Liberals. And she said, "Well, I was interested in a political life, and in Alberta, if you wanted to have a political career, you had to be a conservative. So I represent the left wing of the Conservative Party." She said, "So that that's you're quite right. That was going on. There wasn't there was there seemed to be, and the Conservatives were good at being a big." Big tent party that uh, that it welcomed a lot of people in. Part of the problem now is that I think Mr. Kenny pushed most of those so-called red Tories out, uh, and now that his his right wing is going crazy on him, he doesn't have them to fall back on. You always need to be able to play the balance, right? If you're to, if you're trying to get your own your negotiations are always tougher with your own organization than outside. Yeah, I and, think that I think that when it came to the pandemic response, though, I honestly believe that playing the balance is exactly why he's in this mess that he's in where everybody fucking hates him because like this wasn't like a, 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 vi a living virus that's like trying to infect people and and is killing people that's not something you can play balance with and now no, now everyone hates him right like it, whether you want more restrictions or fewer restrictions or whatever you fucking hate him now like well, I totally agree. I totally agree. And and but the, but the point is, but having pushed the red Tories out of his party, 
he didn't have people within his own party group who could go to the other side and say, no, no, we all got to come down here or we're going to be politically in trouble. True. See what I mean? So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that he ha- he does have that. He d- he is sensible enough to see that he has to do something to control the spread of the disease. But uh, he's been he's been very very he he's weak on responding to his own right wing because there's no one else there to balance them. If he if he had five or six red Tories in his caucus, uh, th- there'd be a little more. I think he'd have a little more flexibility within the within the party circles. Well, and it's funny because. It- uh, the way Kenny is treating that small group of the far right, he treats them like I might lose their vote somehow and th- there's some other party that they might. So I'm going to cater to this small percentage. I find that on the other side, Rachel Notley and the NDP treat the farthest of the left side very differently. I find that the NDP knows that that group has no other choice but to vote for them and therefore is able to centralize their policy making and not worry about that group not catering to them which i think is problematic in its in its own right but do you see what i'm saying like i do kenny believes that that small group matters and that there's somewhere for them to go but there's nowhere for them to go like those people that came to see chris sky today in medicine hat they're either going to vote for Kenny or they're not going to vote. Or, or they're, they're also Drew Barn supporters, right? So he's like, they're going to vote for the use. Well, I guess, although Drew seemed to be t- daring him to push him out. Well, and then, you've, that and then you've got the Wild Rose Independence Party, which I can, the name of which, if I've got that right, the name of, or maybe it's the Independent Wild Rose Party or the, or the Wild rip. Independent Rose Party. Oh, no, it's the rip. Like, yeah. Yeah. So they do have somewhere they can go, but it's pretty marginal. But, but you're right. There's there's nowhere people on the far left can go except except not vote. Right. Well, in the- by far left, I don't mean actually the far left. I mean the uh, the uh, slightly to the left of the center left because we don't really have a far left in this province. Correct. That's a that's a very important distinction we try to make on this show. Like we, you know, uh, there's no denying like you, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what less who's the listener, but the NDP is a centrist party. Yeah. They lean to the well, left I, on uh, things uh, that, that on some social things. It but, leans to the, the left on social issues. It leans to the right on economic issues. Absolutely. And it does. I, and they're all, you know, they're all neoliberal parties to some significant extent. Now. Well, yeah. There's no choice. Say that. 10 degrees to the left in good times, 10 degrees to the right when there's no choice but a a neoliberal party at this point. Like there is no other alternative right now. Yeah, there's no alternative, right? As Margaret Thatcher Um, was fond of saying. Um, And and I I think it's also worth noting that there, I mean, there are technically red Tories in the UCP caucus. They've just all um, fallen into line, right? And 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 the the ones who've fallen into line most aggressively were people who were considered to be red Tories, like Doug Schweitzer and Rick McIver, right? And right. Casey Maydu and uh, Tyler Shandro. I mean, there's a glaring. Uh, 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 Is Tyler Shandro a red Tory? He that was my that's my understanding that he that's that was his reputation prior to uh, becoming elected as UCP MLA. David would uh, have more insight into that. I don't know about that having more insight, but I uh, uh, I think that he when he was a kid, a student at the University of Calgary, uh, 
uh, he wrote an article about healthcare uh, that uh, took a kind of faintly lefty uh, point of view. But he was so young at the time. We all we all go through phases when we're young where we might uh, test out advocating political lines or economic lines that we didn't really believe and we don't really believe now or that we openly don't believe now. So yeah, every uh, every right winger had a left wing phase and every left winger had a right wing phase at some point or almost everyone. So I would say that uh, I, I'm skeptical that uh, Chandra was a, was a uh, red Tory, but I don't really know the man well. So I think this is a. I think we should go back and talk about the strike right now because I want to get back to some other things at the end of the show too. But like, this is an interesting thing, right? Like, we're at a time in Alberta right now. That's why I think it's very relevant to today because if it wasn't for COVID right now, I think we'd already be knee deep in uh, worker unrest, labor unrest in Alberta. I think there would already be strikes. Uh, there was talk of a general strike coming down the pipeline before COVID even arrived. So labor unrest is a real thing. I, I want to talk about the Calgary Herald strike because it was very, very, like it's a, it's a well-known uh, labor unrest. And you started talking earlier about Ken King kind of laid the foundation and then took off before he had got, pushed off, it, yeah. got pushed off. <clears throat> You had be recently become the vice a vice president in your union. Can you just talk about sort of that from that point on um, when you got into the union and how the strike evolved? Well, I guess I got into the union the same way everybody else did because we were uh, we were concerned about the issues that we discussed, principally job security and and uh, and the the it was becoming evident that the newspaper industry was going to continue to squeeze us. You could see trends that had been underway for a long time uh, in places like smaller community papers, places like the Lethbridge Herald, for example, <clears throat> where they were, they were sold off to chains uh, that didn't have a community base, uh, where they cut staff and so on. So these were general trends that had been going on for a long time in the industry that seemed to be accelerating. Uh, the uh, Kevin Peterson had had a couple, the publisher of the day had had a couple of very gloomy talks with us. Now, this was before the internet was really on the horizon as a threat to newspaper publishing. Uh, the internet was around and we were actually already starting in an amateur way to give away copy uh, instead of uh, saying, no, you have to read the paper. But, but uh, uh, I don't think anybody, even though it's recent history, I don't think anybody had really uh, realized how serious the impact of digitization was gonna be on the newspaper business model. <clears throat> Certainly not in our circle working on the, the copy desk in the reporting areas of a big metropolitan newspaper. There were, by the way, I have an old uh, Herald staff list around here somewhere that the editorial alone, the editorial department alone had more than 200 people in it. Holy shit. Cause yeah. right now what, they have like well, a dozen Maybe. Well, they would have. They would probably have, if you count all the part timers, two or three dozen. But, uh, but then, uh, reality. The reality is probably a dozen people are doing all the work, or doing most of the work, and 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 have real jobs. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it's become a radically different world very quickly. But anyway, where was I? Uh, so we were, but we were concerned uh, about rollbacks and cutbacks uh, of a level that. Uh, just uh, would have been far less severe than what's actually been happening for the last 20 years. <clears throat> but uh, 
So we decided we had an organizing drive. We, we brought in, and I forget now how this came about, but we brought in Communications Energy and Paper Workers Union because they were the principal media union in the, in the uh, East. And I wasn't, at that point, I wasn't really enormously involved in it, but I had been a member of the Southern Ontario Newspaper Guild in uh, in Ontario at the Globe. So uh, I certainly knew people and probably gave people names that were contacted. But anyway, they they did an organizing drive and they got enough interest that they, they or they, they did a exploratory drive and then they got enough interest that they came out and did a real drive. And, and we basically signed more than 40%, but probably more than 50% of memory serves enough people to get a to get a vote. And then the very heavy handed tactics that Ken King employed to try and talk us out of voting, uh, I think persuaded more people to vote. So there was a, uh, uh, as, uh, there was a vote in excess of 80% in favor of certification. So, th so at that point they had to go ahead and try to, try to uh, negotiate a collective agreement. And the way labor law technically works in Alberta worked then and works now was that you have to sit down and try to negotiate a first contract. But it was very, very clear that the company's strategy from day one is that they were never going to sign a collective agreement. And they used every technique, every technique that you hear about in labor circles, including the famous receding horizon, where whenever you seem to get close to a deal, then the horizon, the, the deal moves farther over the horizon. Uh, and it was really clear they had no, they had no intention of ever signing a deal. So we struck, probably had no choice in that. They hired scabs. Uh, they continued to publish the paper. Uh, it, it was an appalling situation for eight months. It was very difficult for everybody. I'm sure that people on the other side didn't appreciate being called names as they crossed the picket line every day too. Uh, but the the upshot was uh, uh, they were successful in busting the union in June of 90. Who were the scabs? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm or, pretty June sure. Of 2000, me. I, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of the scabs are names we would be familiar with now and have uh, sort of uh, failed upwards, I guess you could say. Yeah, like. In, yeah, well, it depends how you define scab. And I, I guess uh, what I would say to you is that's true. There were a number of people who, uh, who crossed the picket line, uh, and Don Braid is an example, uh, who worked across the picket line, uh, who, who were good journalists. Uh, and have continued to be good journalists and have and have fallen upwards, if you like, because they had talent. But there were a lot of people uh, who, who were brought in specifically to be scabs, well, most, of, most of whom were not very good and almost all of whom are completely forgotten uh, because they weren't, they weren't really good enough to stick around in journalism. So there was a large number of people like that. But, uh, you know, I got this vast collection of pictures of people crossing the picket line. And I look at them now, I don't know who most of them are. I mean, there are the exceptions that have done well have been quite prominent. Daniel Smith is one. Daniel was, I, I can't say that I know that Daniel was brought in to be a scab, but coincidentally, she was hired just before the strike. So I think it's a reasonable supposition that was the case. Well, uh, and, and she, she didn't, and she worked through the strike. So, and, so and, yeah. and you guys, you guys had a nickname for Danielle. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Well, I don't know that we coined the nickname, but Danielle was called Trash Can Danny by a lot of people. And this had come out of the time when she was on the Calgary School Board, the Calgary Public School Board as a school trustee. And, and someone who was maybe unfairly or maybe not unfairly, but someone who was suspected to be Danielle Smith 
had retrieved notes by a couple of other trustees who were took a, a more liberal point of view than she had by by coincidence or or not uh, and reassembled those notes and then and then shipped them over to the press where they became a story and they were notes that were being critical of other people on on the on the board so for for this act which i can't tell you that she actually did this but for this act that somebody did and that was blamed on her uh, of taking the, the torn up notes out of the trash can, taking them home and scotch taping them all back together again, that came the name Trash Can Danny, which was quite common in teaching circles and in journalism circles. I mean, I appreciate that we're all the kinds of people who are like, well, we don't know for sure, right? That's what a good journalist says. Like, we don't really know who did it. It but sounds like, I'm, right, I'm just though. I'm just saying like, sounds like it's probably it sounds like it could have been her well it so, could have been her so, well, so we don't, but i'm saying we don't know i mean the thing is you know we were talking earlier about uh, i said I, I said more outrageous things on my blog 14 years ago than i do now and there's a good reason for that i've got a much bigger readership and i'm much more careful about defamation issues uh, because i don't want to be sued and if i am sued i want to have a good case you, and you don't so, have a, yeah yeah I, and you're so on your I own truly, if you're sued too right I, tr I truly, I wasn't in the room. I truly have no knowledge of who, of who took the notes out and taped them back together again. But certainly there was, you know, mo mode of opportunity. <laughs> right, right. She, yeah. And wasn't, uh, wasn't a uh, friend of the show, Tom Olson, also uh, brought in as a scab? Well, you see, I said there were two kinds of scabs. <laughs> so, there, so, there, so there were those who were on staff and who continue to work across the picket line. That'll get that'll get you called a scab, mm -hmm. and there were those who were actually brought in to become scabs who were hired for the purpose of being scabs. I view that as worse. That's just kind of my emotional reaction to that. Uh, and most of those people are forgotten. I'll someday I'll share about some of my pictures with you and see if we can identify some of these clowns. But 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 Tom was an assistant city editor. That was his proper title before the strike, and I was an assistant city editor before the strike. And there were, as I recall, five assistant city editors and that we each had different slightly specialized roles. And Tom was the assignment editor and I was the night city editor. And there was a, and a day assistant city editor and a couple of others, but anyway, they, the, the, so when the union organized the place, when the union got their vote, one of the things the company did was they went and they tried to say that all of the assistant city editors were in management. And it, this one became a fight and it went to the labor board and the labor board said, no, sorry, they're not in management, they're in the workforce. So Tom continued to cross the picket line. I have a nice picture of him crossing the picket line. And I did and I went out and walked the picket line. We were both assistant city editors. So, so if someone were to argue, for example, that, uh, that I was in, or, or to say that they were in management and they had no choice, that would be incorrect correct in the case of Tom and I. Sounds like it. Now, Tom Olson, Don Bray, Daniel Smith, I even, I guess. Was Corbella you, involved in that? No. Or no. she had, came later? Had you she, been, was, she was working at the Sun at the time, and she had nothing to do, nothing to do with the strike. Right. So, where, so we might disagree Braid, with her, but she's, she's not a skip. Right, whereas Braid went from the Sun to the Herald. Well, Braid's an interesting case, and I wrote a blog post about this at the this uh, at the time of uh, I didn't want to really, but it was at the time that the uh, Broadbent Institute was going to bring him in to chair a meeting in Vancouver, and I had 
told them you really shouldn't do this. He he played, in my view, a prominent role in the strike and uh, and uh, for the for the employer side. And they basically told me to pump sand. And uh, so then I wrote the column, and then Braid withdrew from that from that little job as a presenter at a, at a seminar they were going to have in Vancouver. But the thing with the, the thing with Don was he had he had written a column that generally supported the goals of the strikers while he was working for the Sun, uh, and then he was he had previously worked for the Herald and had left, and there had been news coverage in the Globe and Mail about the outrageous treatment that he experienced at the Herald that led him to go to the Sun. When when the strike was on, after he'd written that column, after all of that history, he was offered a job back at the Herald, and both he and his wife went back to the Herald and worked. She later wrote a piece that was headlined, I'm proud to be a scab. Gross. Or words to that effect. Had but anyway, you, so. Yeah, yeah Braid, uh, Braid is, um, I, I, I mean, I like him. I think he's thoughtful. And uh, I, I do. I, I agree. I, I learn a lot from his columns, even though. Uh, you know, we come from sort of, uh, I mean, I'm definitely further to the left than he is to the right, but we definitely come from different places. Look, but... look, with the benefit of hindsight, this was a difficult time and people had to make difficult choices. And they had, they had difficult choices about their incomes, difficult choices about their friendships. And, uh, and, and we chose different sides and there was a lot of bitterness that flowed from that. But it doesn't, doesn't make him a lousy journalist. He's a good journalist and he's a fine writer. So Had you been friends with these like the oh, with, with some, with some, with some. I mean, I generally had friendly relationships with people I worked with, except with one or two exceptions, uh, like everybody, right? Yeah, you said it, it created some bitterness, like long lasting. Like, how do you have a relationship with Braid now? I mean, you guys are both still in the same sort of scene. I mean, we always have a friendly conversation when uh, when we talk, but I, I don't, you know, I, I, uh, there were certainly people who I had been friends with that I didn't really want to associate with after that. Uh, and there were people who I forgave for one reason or another, because maybe because I liked them before, right? Absolutely. So when the strike ended, because they like, that was the end of the union too, was the end of the strike? I'm sorry, yeah, because right? what happened was the, we couldn't reach an agreement and the, and the union gave up. And so they basically brought us this deal and asked us to ratify this deal in which we would in which we would dissolve the union, and anyone who wanted to leave would be given a buyout. It was reprehensible on the part. If I had been president of the union, there would I, well I shouldn't say there would still be a union there today, but there would have been a union after the strike. It would have had a shitty contract and it would have been a horrible couple of years, but there would have been a union there after the strike because we could have forced it through the courts, but CEP gave up. And they, and they decided, I'm sure, in their head office that this was costing too much and it was going to be a horrible situation afterwards and they just wanted to wash their hands of it. So be, really, I feel they walked away from it. No, go so, ahead, for, so, well, I was going to say, so for me, and I think for some others, uh, it was fortunate. It turned out to be fortunate. It felt like a disaster. It felt like my, my career is lost, my... Uh, uh, you know, my, my vocation, I'm no longer able to practice. But in fact, I walked out the door of the newspaper industry just as it began to collapse into dust. 
And I've certainly done better not being in newspapers than I would have done if I'd remained in newspapers. What are you talking about? I have yeah, I can. Uh, I, I I I can't relate to that at all. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, you mentioned no, sarcasm is doesn't really work well in Alberta. <laughs> Um, you mentioned that a strategy of the unions was to sort of uh, frame this as a battle against Conrad Black, which yes. you, in retrospect wasn't a great idea. Can you tell me a bit more about that um, strategy and why you think it was erroneous? Well, I think it was a mistake because he, he was a, uh, what's the word, a, an arbitrary, somewhat dictatorial character who, who ran the company in a very personal way. Uh, and he naturally took the kind of attacks that were being made on him personally. And, uh, and so there was a, a real determination on the part of the chief executive to make sure that the matter wasn't settled. And, uh, I, and I don't think in retrospect that that was a smart strategy on the part of the union. And when I say the union, this, uh, this originated in, uh, to a significant degree in CEP's head office. It wasn't just us on the front lines. We did, we did some very effective things that uh, continued to show we had life in the strike even after the company had thought we'd lost it. But so the, well, you asked about the kind of things that were done. I mean, aside from a lot of rhetoric and a lot of attacks that were public statements that were made that were uh, talked about black rather than the company or rather than the corporation. Um, there were things like a satire edition of the National Post was published by someone in the union head office in Toronto. Uh, and that was distributed to travelers arriving at Toronto International Airport. Um, yeah, I'm sure that pissed them off. And I'm sure it did, really didn't do much good. It was sort of a vanity project for, for one or two people. I'd love uh, to get a copy of that. You know, I don't even know if copies exist. I have to, I've got a box of some old strike stuff. I might have a, I can put out a call and see. But anyway, I don't know if, if we were to look at it now, I doubt we would find it very funny. It was done sort of like a Frank Magazine satire uh, of the National Post, right? Or a parody edition uh, that was, uh, I just think it was a, it was a waste of money and a waste of time and pr probably counterproductive in terms of getting the kind of result we wanted. But I don't know. These strikes get personal and they get better. And if you're going to, if you have a, uh, I, I suppose people at Amazon, uh, if they ever manage to organize a plant and they have a strike, they'll certainly be naming Jeff Bezos, right? Yeah. This is kind of inevitable. Go you ahead. ever meet uh, the good uh, Lord Black? Well, I don't know. This is, we're getting into close degrees of separation here. I, I, I have not, but I have seen him. Uh, and I have seen him when I was in the same room. <laughs> so, so, but he, but he came into the newsroom one day, just, just not too long before the strike. And he, he walked by and he paused and read the bulletin board where I think I had surreptitiously stuck up a snotty note earlier in the day. And, uh, and he seemed to look at things and, and then, and then wandered on. But so I've seen the man in the flesh, but I haven't, uh, I haven't ever properly introdu been introduced to him and I've never shaken his hand. So. Well, that's good. So coming out of the strike, you, uh, it sounds a lot like a story of union failure. And I, I, are there positives out of what happened in that that make it something beyond what is amounts to a cautionary tale at this point? Well, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. And one of the things was that uh, when the NDP came in, they changed the uh, they changed the Labor Act to bring us into accord with what much of the rest of the much, much of the rest of the country had uh, with first contract arbitration. 
And I believe first contract arbitration is still on the books, but the, the, as part of its program, the UCP intends to, to remove that. I'm not actually, I haven't been watching that very closely, so I'm not sure where that is right now, but their intention is to pull that. But that's an important part of uh, allowing the collective bargaining process to work. I certainly wouldn't discourage people from joining a union, but uh, I, but I would say that some unions are better run than other unions, and some unions are better run at certain times than other unions. And there are these situations that you can get into with uh, uh, bargaining units that are difficult to organize. Uh, so I guess I might be a, uh, what's the word here, a, a more perceptive consumer, as it were, if I was, uh, uh, if I was a member of a workforce that was being unionized. I, I mean, think it's typically public service unions are better run, uh, more professionally run, but then they're also dealing with an are, employer that usually doesn't have a problem having a union. Well, the the employer is also somebody that can be actually democratically removed, right? Like, I mean, you don't, yeah, you don't a, have a public, to, no, a private no. union doesn't really like I, when we, like my union, it's not like we can do shit about like who, who owns the company. No, true. Like, but I, I'm right, not talking like, about electoral politics. I see, for example, if you're if you're a healthcare worker in Alberta, you maybe you would, are working in the public sector, but you might be working for Covenant Health, or you might be working for Alberta Health Services. But you're te technically, at least until the UCP came along, really bargaining with Alberta Health Services or Covenant Health or whoever. Now there is, in fact, a kind of. Uh, the, the government is pulling the strings and has implemented legislation that allows them to pull the strings. That, that uh, is clearly unconstitutional now, and I think it will fail in the courts, but God knows how long that will take. But years, years of being able to, like the, the effect of, of union discouragement and uh, what they can do with those laws until they're thrown out of court is- Yes, that's right. You can't that's do that, right? No, and, and there's low union pen penetration in Alberta anyway. So, uh, but, uh, but anyway, to go back to the, your original question, I, don't, I think that uh, uh, one of the greatest benefits of being a union member in a, in a private sector workplace is that whether the parties like it or not, you are forced to have a grown-up relationship with your employer. Uh, just, be, just because of the uh, intervention of labor law, they can't, they, it's not as patronizing it's a it's a more it's a more respectful relationship even when it's not particularly respectful and so that's one of the things i like about the having a collective bargaining relationship but i would say to you that the the cautionary tale i would still encourage people in the newspaper industry to join a union but unions learn from situations like that too just because a, a union 20 some years ago made a bad decision and walked away from a strike that in my view they shouldn't have uh, uh, doesn't mean that uh, unionization is a bad thing. And it also, the fact that we fought that strike so hard, they thought they would crush us in two weeks. Uh, and we hung on for eight months. Uh, and, we, and we really, in the end, it got to the point where we, it was trench warfare and we damaged their reputation. I think two, they would think twice about conducting themselves the way they did. They wouldn't bring in a- So it's not, it's not a From out of town to, sorry. It's not a win that came without battle scars for them. Correct. And so, um, of course, ultimately the strike was crushed. The union was crushed. What, what, what do you make of the direction the paper went after that? Like, was, was there a decline in quality? Because from my understanding, the vast majority of people who were on the picket line took the buyout. Correct. And so 
what like I, I understand you're from you're looking on the outside after that but like what what do you make of the paper's trajectory well i would say that, that it certainly played a role because a lot of good people and a lot of experienced people and a lot of mature people who understood a lot about journalism left uh, and and it hurt them that hurt them in that way they were able to hire some good people afterwards too um, they kept they kept a few who had been on strike who had decided not to do what I did and take the buyout. But uh, really, the trajectory of the newspaper business the, that uh, accelerated the process, I think, in Calgary. Uh, but really, this has been this has been going on at union and non-union papers alike because of uh, the bad decisions that have been made by newspaper company management. Uh, and because of real circumstances that were to some degree outside their control, like the effect of digitization on the on the newspaper business model, I would say to you, I've well, I've said this many times, but that that for more than a hundred years, no matter how badly you ran a newspaper, you couldn't avoid making money. You could run the shittiest community paper, and you could and you would make pots of money anyway because it was the the only show in town other than the yellow pages for people to advertise them. And digitization did change that, yeah, but one of the effects, one of the, the early effects of that was that newspaper management, particularly in local newspapers, had become very weak because you didn't have to appoint good people who understood the business in order to make money. So crazy decisions were made based on fads, management fads, union, or not union, but, uh, but management bureaucracy ideas bad business books, all this. So all kinds of unsuitable people were running newspapers. And when they faced a real crisis, they had no idea what to do. And uh, and this, so this was, I, I don't know that newspapers could have been saved, but the uh, decline of newspapers could have been managed so that it took 100 years instead of 15 or 20. And, uh, you know, I just think the, the, so there's all kinds of stupid decisions that were made along the way to, uh, uh, for if one, the most obvious was the first one was to uh, just start putting everything on everything, every single flipping word on the internet and not say to people that there was, uh, that there was any value in the product that you were selling and had been traditionally selling at all. Because they thought, oh, well, well people will always read the paper and we can, and we can always, uh, we can always sell advertisements. Another example is, the newspaper industry to this day doesn't get it that the larger the real estate occupied in the pages of the paper, the more the ad should be worth. We are, now digitization has totally changed that. The, the it's it's penetration and its links. If you can if you can touch on a link and click through to someone that can be recorded and tracked, but it's also better from a consumer's perspective. Yeah, so if you say, well, we sell you a whole page, a whole page ad isn't worth as much as a half page ad oftentimes. Depends what's on the other half of the page. And, uh, and, and advertisers get that, but newspapers don't get it to this day. So, and, that's, and that's just an indication of a failure of management. I remember when I worked for the Globe and Mail, the newspapers were making money hand over fist. And, we, and I was working on the business desk and I handled the story one day about how Thompson, which owned the Globe at the time, was selling all its newspapers in North America. And the only, one, the only ones it was keep, keeping, there was one in the States and the Globe and Mail, and they were selling them off. And I thought, what's, what's wrong with these people? It's a great business. It makes money hand over fist. What's, what, what, what on earth could they be thinking? Well, obviously, they figured it out before I did, because they sold it all for top dollar before it went to shit. 
so they, they, had, they had seen what was coming down the pike. So yeah. my hat's off to, to Thompson's heirs for whoever it was in the company that figured that out when it really wasn't obvious. But the, but the newspaper business, like I say, they're pretty, their management at what I all, still always call Southam, they're hopeless. They, they're, they're, their thinking is still mired in the, in the, in the 1970s and 1980s. Now I want to, sorry, I, we have about ten minutes left, and I want to. I, I have a couple couple of things I want to touch on before we go. But one of the things I want to talk about, we're talking about how sort of newspapers got toward the good. So it's a good place to maybe segue to. I want to talk about sort of the state of journalism that we see today. Um, you know, the from the post media dominance to the uh, lack of. Uh, fact-checking that gets done to the sort of we become a lot microphones for uh, communications departments essentially um, is that all related to just the same bad decision making or is this is this like a group of people that have bought the media and have decided that they're going to control the message oh it's both I mean, yeah. when the fewer the fewer people you have working in it, the fewer alternative voices internally to argue for different editorial policies or different approaches. <clears throat> the, the fewer resources you have to do investigative journalism. There's a lot of commentary now because it's cheaper to publish commentary. You can hire some guy and he can turn out a column once or twice a week for a lot less money than you can have a report. What are you talking about? It takes weeks to put one together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <That's laughs> Let's okay. just pull the drapes down. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Oh, I let the cat out of the bag. Didn't that's I? right. Yeah, yeah. I do not. Has I, no I start Friday morning and I'm done by noon. Shut up. Yeah. Hey, well, Go you ahead. know me. I, yeah. write a, I write a blog post every night for that's just about. So, uh, but anyway, it's 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 cheaper to do that. So so they've they've cheaped out. I mean, it's been it's been incremental. You never feel it's like the the proverbial frog in a pot of water, right? That you never feel the heat rising. So when I was at Globe and Mail, we used to put out a bulldog edition at, uh, I think it was uh, 9.30 or 10 at night was the deadline. And then it would be sold on the streets late at night. When you read that uh, uh, Milton Acorn poem about the about the newsie selling the newspaper on Spadina, that's that was the bulldog edition of the Globe because that was the first one out. And uh, And so we would always, we would proofread each page three times, each three different people would proof it. Uh, and, then, and then when the Bulldog edition came out, we'd, re, we'd proof it again in print. So by the time the home edition came out, there were almost no mistakes in it. Well, they got rid of the Bulldog and then they got rid of one of those three and then they got rid of two of those three. And then finally they said, we'll just run a spell check on the computer. Uh, and, then they, and then they shortened the number. So all of these things were incremental and little tiny steps that saved a dime here and a dollar there, but continually made the product worse. So what's what's driving newspapers down? I mean, there's they're in a sad state, but they're so under understaffed. You've got a guy in Hamilton, Ontario, I think it is, uh, uh, doing all the pages for Post Media. So he do, he doesn't know the geography of Edmonton or the geography of Calgary. Of course, of course, there's good additional mistakes creep in because of that. Well, it's a literary medium. People don't like grammatical errors and they don't like factual errors. So they used to they they would survey when I was there. They'd say, why are why are so few people renewing their subscriptions. So they'd go and sur survey them and people would say, well, I don't have time to read the paper. So they'd say, well, we better have shorter stories with less information in them so that people who don't have any time can read them. Well, Canadians are polite. They don't want to say, 
I don't want to read your paper because it's a shitty rag. <laughs> right. So, so they were, so they were doing exactly the wrong thing. They needed longer reads and more information. That was the original well, argument. That's what we did. Like that is what we did. That was better than TV. Like than TV. Right. TV. You watch the news, and yeah, you get a minute and a half segment, and you get the gist of it. The whole point of being able to have the newspaper come, like especially now when we can't even do it timely wise, we're the last with the information. We're tomorrow, which is already too late. You better told provide me something beyond the gist once you're getting to that point. I, that's what I think we should provide. They told me at the Times in 1973, people will always read newspapers because there'll be more information there. <laughs> but that is the, that is definitely not the case now. So well, those I, were the mistakes. But you but yeah. you've also got right wing organizations. As these things became less valuable, uh, fringier people were able to buy them. It wasn't like the the Oaks family and the apples, right? The Appels. Uh, you had uh, you had these tremendously expensive, tremendously valuable big newspapers. Not any piker could just go in and buy them. But but nowadays. You know what? What is it? Uh, Subway has a higher stock value than Post Media does. So, so the, you know, right wing people are buying them to be propaganda outfits. What drives me crazy is that I can't have for twenty years. I've been unable to persuade the labor movement to start its own media website, uh, its own news website, staff it properly, and get a lot of people just as a as a lost leader because you're providing good quality news to also disseminate your opinions. Now is that the because they, they won't listen to me? When we talked the other day, when we talked the other day, you said make sure you ask me about. What can be done to create progressive news? Is that what you just started to talk about? Well, because that's that one was of the last things thing that, I wanted to ask you before you left today. One of the things that could be done is the, uh, say, the Alberta Federation of Labor or the Saskatchewan Federation of Labor could put money into a publication as the BC Federation of Labor did with the TIE in Vancouver. I didn't so know the TIE was. Uh, the TIE had was underwritten by the BC Federation of Labor to a significant degree in its early years, and they and they advanced them some money to set that up. <clears throat> then they let them, push them out the door and it continues to be a success, continues to be a valuable publication. But you can't, but, you, but a group like us, we don't have the funds, we don't have the resources to go in and, and start, a, we, can, we can offer our opinions, we can do podcasts, we can write a blog, <clears throat> but we can't do real investigative journalism because that costs money. We can't hire people and pay them a decent salary to do that kind of work and get real professionals. There are groups, and the one because I've been involved in the labor movement, the labor movement pops to my mind that could do that, uh, that has the resources to do that. So why the hell don't they? Uh, like I say, there's uh, there's lots of arguments. It's a, one of the problems I think is that unions are truly democratic organizations, and when you have a crowd of people in a room where there is a real democracy going on, people will, intelligent people will stand up and argue against things that you and I might think are a good idea. So it's harder than with a corporation where you can just say, well, this, I'm the, I'm the CEO and this is what we're going to do. Uh, but that is, but that is one kind of institution in society that, that really could have made a difference. And you, there's a reason that somebody, I don't know who, but somebody's obviously putting some money into the Western Standard for so Derek Fildebrandt can run a, a, a right-wing news source in Alberta. But nobody, nobody, who else on the left has the funds to do that? Well, the labor union movement does, and it should, but it, it, 
uh, they're not listening to me about that. Maybe if other people make that argument. Do, but do you see um, promising signs in some of the sort of new media outlets that are sympathetic to the labor movement's goals that are coming out, like Passage, or I know, uh, I mean, they're, they've been around a while, but your column gets reprinted in Rabble. Uh, there's Rank and File. Um Press you progress. Know, progress report. Press progress. Um, the sprawl. He wants one of us to say it. We'll say the sprawl. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, uh, I, I don't. I yeah. I, I see uh, value in those groups, but the, but there's but you really need to have the resources to command the heights. Uh, it's an interesting time, right? Because you can you know, when you were to set up a major national newspaper like when Conrad Black set up the National Post, literally took millions of dollars. Um, now you could probably do that for one million dollars, or or for an investment of a couple million dollars. So the so the cost of entry is lower, but none of the ones that you've mentioned, I imagine, uh, have the kind of resources that could could really allow them to to do the things that need to be done. And I don't know what all those things are, but that do the things that need to be done to extend your reach to to really have a powerful voice. So we have a lot of good journalism being practiced in places that, that people don't even know about, people, sympathetic readers don't even know about, and then being distrib distributed on uh, social media. So you sometimes see this stuff, and then you can never remember the name of that. I've had this, like, so I read an article in Ricochet once, and then wanted to look it up again, and couldn't, re couldn't remember what the name of Ricochet was. Well, how do you find these things? Well, you, 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 you build the, the status of a New York Times or a Washington Post or a Global Mail. So uh, I, yeah, I, 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 nobody has found a formula for uh, getting small local news sites on that to really ha have, in my view, a lot of, a lot of impact in, in most places. Some of them kind of, interestingly, they come out of well-established newspapers and then they disappear when they go digital. <clears throat> I mean, who reads the Seattle Post Intelligencer? Not me. Not me either. <laughs> But you've also had some success with your blog. Maybe if we can sort of bring this conversation full circle. Um, well, I, you, I well, mean, I, you get a lot of views. I have a lot of readers, but they're all basically from the same audience. I think that there are some people in conservative circles who enjoy it for one reason or another, or 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 because we all enjoy being made mad too, um, <laughs> but uh, or made angry, but. Uh, but you know, I don't think my reach is really great outside Alberta or outside progressive circles. And uh, you know, when I uh, talk to people in BC, I have family in BC, and I had a funeral to arrange here a few months ago. And uh, when I talk to people in BC about Alberta politics, or that I write this blog with that name, uh, the the reaction was universally, "Oh, I never heard of that." <laughs> Uh, Whereas if I, I'd been writing even a, even even for a bad old post-media newspaper, uh, I would have had access to a lot more people. I do believe, I can't prove this, but I do believe I have more readers now than the St. Albert uh, Gazette, the, lo the local weekly newspaper. But they have a, a really good website, actually. But, uh, but I think my site gets more readers than theirs does. I just think that. Your, your site probably gets more readers than the medicine at news, so don't feel bad. Don't, don't worry about it. You're doing good. Well, we can, if we maybe we can compare uh, actual statistics. <clears throat> well, we probably could, but uh, I'd, I'd be ashamed 
I, I don't want to get sh- I don't want to get shamed that bad. I, <laughs> well, I work for a just talk- fucking daily newspaper, and I probably still don't get as many reads as you do. Well, the, I got to tell you, the <laughs> Medicine Hat News really needs a new website. It's a terrible website, and it's technically oh, bad. No idea. Uh, we also don't so- have anybody to like run it to take care of it. So, like, unless you're clicking on a link that's provided for you, like, you do not want to go to our website and just shop around for a story to read. Well, that's what I mean. I've done Nobody that. In it's really hard it. to find your way around. Well, I you hope were you're talking not responsible for that. No, no, but see, you were talking about that earlier, right? Like, you used to have three people proofread a page before it went out. Like, this is the process now. A reporter writes something, and then I edit it and put it on the page, and that's it. We're done. Well, you've probably got there one more editor no, than most places do. There is no proofread. Well, of course, exactly. There is no proofreader. If I make a mistake, that's it. If I miss a mistake, that's it. It's in the paper. So, like, so that's the I end complain of it. all the time. Shit, that, and, and, and I always feel like an asshole for a mistake. And you're, we're the one, the, the four or five of us that still work there are the ones whose names are on the paper. And you feel like a dipshit when there's a mistake. But at the yeah. same time, I now, not, not only on top of that, I also have a 9.30 deadline because we don't print in Medicine Hat anymore. So a daily newspaper, I can't, I can't go to 11 anymore. So I don't even get stories until about five five thirty. So I have four hours to edit and lay a paper out right. every day. Well, no kidding. There's errors, yeah. and this is the thing. Like, how are they going to ever like? It's almost like we want to fail because honestly, like, if without numbers, without enough people to actually provide a proper product, it's a fucking use. It's a shitty product. Why would anybody buy it? But you see, well, they've, I think got, it's a they've gotten right away with it at every step of the way because there's no analysis there. So they say, well, we, but, but we saved $500 a month by this idiotic step or that idiotic step. Right. Um, they never go back and say, they never go back and connect the dots. But of course, our readership went down again. Oh, that's the fault of the internet. That's why I say, if you'd been smart, you could have managed the decline of the newspaper business over 100 years instead of over 15 or 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always thought when I started, I thought, you know, I'm in my 40s now. I'm like, I'm in Medicine Hat. There's enough senior citizens here. We have a pretty high readership for for per capita. It's like, I probably could, I probably could make it for, you know, another 10, 15 years at this place. And then uh, COVID hit and uh, pretty much everyone got laid off except for me. So you start, you start really uh, eyeing your own journalistic mortality at that point especially when you're two two years into writing a column that has guaranteed you'll never get hired at another newspaper in your life <laughs> so that I pays mean, so bad anyway so right like this is it if if the medicine hat news is done i'm pretty sure that uh like you i'm gonna need a new a new career i'll have a blog but that'll be about it I don't think the Calgary Herald's going to be extending their hands out to me anytime. No, they're not going to. Yeah, no, no they aren't. <laughs> That's okay. I can live with that. But listen, it's about the time that we got to wrap up. Jeremy, do you have any final questions you want to ask David before we let him get back to his Saturday? I want to ask you, Scott, uh, oh, what's fuck. the worst mistake you've let slip through? Because I, I have one in mind that I just mentioned. Uh, oh, I have to that, tell you a worst mistake, made- sir. The, the, the worst mistake that I've let through recently was on Orange Shirt Day. I think you were the reporter. Yeah, yeah, it was and me. You, I, I, you, you forgot the R, so you had orange shits, and I, I missed it. So in the newspaper on the front fucking page, we had a story about Orange Shits Day, and that we got 
we got piled on for that. Yeah, I, I okay, did what? a bit. I did a bit of an apology tour after that. <laughs> yeah. So, so when I was editor of the student newspaper at the University of Victoria, uh, we had a story about the women's center, and we were putting the paper to bed at about two in the morning, and we cracked a couple of beers, so we were starting to start not paying as much attention as we ought to have been. Right. And somebody calls across the room and says, "There's no headline on this story." I said, well, what's it about? And they, and they shouted, uh, it's what's well, the one about the women's center. And I said, well, just say women's center fights for sex equality. And then I oh, never wow. went over and looked at it. And the next day the paper rolled off the press and it said women's center fights for sexy quality. And my name was oh. Mud. My name was Mud. And it took a lot of yeah. apologizing to get out of that. So so the lesson, the takeaway from that is always go over and check it with your own eyes. Totally. In fact, uh, Justin Seward, who's a guy we uh, we work with, he runs the, uh, what is it? The Cypress Courier? Bow Island, Bow Island Commentator. Commentator, whatever. And he was, uh, he's in our company, works in the newsroom when we don't have COVID. But anyway, he, uh, he recently tried to write Who Replaces? in a headline and the space came out of it. So it just said whore places and it was all about a fence line runway. And so people actually like thought this was a story about fencing the runway at a whore place. Like it was, that was a pretty epic one. That reminds me when I was writing for the commentator, I did a story on the funding, the NDP announced for like the RCMP to fight rural crime. And I think it was a hundred million dollars, but I forgot the million. So, oh, just a hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, and I bet a lot of the rural readers were just like that damn NDP. Yeah, Colin typoed a story recently about the uh, CPC's carbon pricing plan, and their cap. They would cap their carbon tax at fifty dollars, and he, you know how the the dollar sign is also the number four, so he actually wrote four hundred and fifty dollars. So, like whatever that was like quite a bit more expensive than the liberals. So he got, he had to do a little bit of an apology tour this week as well for that, for making the conservatives look like they were going to have, they actually wanted to do something. Yeah. Like they actually wanted to deal with climate change. Yeah. Like it should be $450 eventually. hundred percent. Yes. But this is now, are we still on the air here? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, well then I won't tell you the next story. Okay. Well, (laughs) we'll we'll finish. We'll wrap up. I got, and uh, then we'll keep you around and tell us that story. But David, I really wanted to thank you. We really wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. We've been wanting to do this since the beginning. No joke. You are a mentor of ours. We uh, we've, we've read your blog for a long time. We really appreciate the work you do. I wish I had the readership you did. So, uh, you know, if you don't mind show. Well, just keep doing it for 14 years. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, that. I'm sure I, I'm, I, I can think of mouthy things to say for another 14 years. But uh, anyway, again, really appreciate having me on the show. And uh, please come back and see us again sometime. You bet. Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. Uh, I think you were, you were probably one of our earliest supporters, um, you know, outside Medicine Hat. And uh, that meant a lot to me because I really looked up to you and still do um well so, thanks very much thanks. thanks so much for coming and uh we'll definitely have you on again where we can uh maybe talk more about like current events yeah sure absolutely but i uh i i thought um i i was really uh glad to hear your perspective on the herald strike because that's sort Good. of a uh we've been talking about wanting to hear that for a while yeah time, a very so. key moment i think in shaping the alberta media landscape 
the best description of it is in the late Brian Brennan's, uh, the recently late Brian Brennan's book, Leaving Dublin. There's a chapter devoted to the Calgary Herald Strike that's very good and accurate. We'll check it out. So we'll we'll uh, we'll link to David's blog and his Twitter handle in the if I'm sure you guys all follow him anyways, but we'll link to that stuff in the show notes. And uh, this is the time in the show where we thank our patrons who go above and beyond anything we could ever ask for. So to Chris Derwolf, to Big Red Machine, to Dave Bonmiller, to Nancy Niles, and to our newest uh, ten dollar plus a month donator. We, we, we think your name is Nicola D. Is that right, Bo? Am I close? Okay. And if we're wrong, you know, email us and tell us correctly. But I don't, we've decided that your name may or may not mean Nicola D. Nicola, which is what it says on the thing. So anyway, thank you so much for your support. We, it means a lot to us. Um, we, we share like celebratory texts when stuff like that comes in and we're pretty lame about it, but we do appreciate it a ton. And uh, to the rest of our patrons, to our listeners, couldn't do without you. We'll see you guys again next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.